Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's, episode two for this week. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We're going to get into a couple of the big games in week two and get to your mailbag questions. But first, Bruce, uh, you wanted to bring up some sad news uh, in the college football world from Tuesday. Yeah, uh, Sam Bam Cunningham, college football legend. He was a great player at USC and then with the Patriots. He passed away uh, Tuesday. He was 71. And, you know, obviously he was before both our times at USC, but I knew the folklore and the history about him, about the 1970 team that USC had that played an all-white Alabama team and beat them. Uh, He ran for 135 yards and two touchdowns. And that had a big role in Bear Bryant's decisions to to recruit black players. I think there was a famous line um, by one of Alabama's assistants talking about, you know, trying to compare how much uh, Sam Cunningham's performance that day did to integrate Alabama in those 60 minutes as relation to a lot of other things that were very significant in the civil rights movement. Um, just personally, I got to meet Sam when I first moved out to Los Angeles. I went to dinner at uh, Petros Papadakis's family's restaurant in San Pedro. And uh, John, his dad, who was a teammate and a captain on that team, and there's been books written. I think there may be a movie made about that team. Um, sat me with Sam and I got to sit at his table and I was in awe of him because I, you know, he was a legendary figure for largely for that, uh, game, but, um, he was, he was, you know, he was a huge running back. He was a big guy. So I'm sure for that time, but even by today's standards. And so I was in awe of him for a little bit. And then when you started talking to him, he was so down to earth and so warm and, and it was such a good storyteller he just became Sam, you know, which was like um, USC obviously has had some legendary running backs uh, and Sam didn't win a Heisman, but he probably had a more impactful moment or or uh, situ- more impactful uh, career than maybe a lot of those other guys who did win Heismans. And he, like I said, he was so down to earth. I talked to uh, Norm Chow, not about this, but Norm and I were talking about him this morning, and he was just like, he made my family, because Norm was an assistant at USC, but that was, I think, his only connection. He goes, he just, he made my family just feel so welcome all the time, and he just, he just cared about people. Um, And so, for a lot of people who got to know him, I think that was one of the things, the takeaway was what a sweet man he was. And so, I just, you know... uh, uh, thinking about his family and, and all the people he was close to because there was a lot of people like that. I did not have the good fortune to meet him like you did, and, and but what you're describing is how everybody who covers USC um, was describing him uh, yesterday. And yeah, there's no, uh, there's no question that you talk about impactful players. I mean, I don't even frankly know that much about his on the field. I'm sure, I know he was very good, but you know, stats or anything like that, I just know that that legendary game in 1970, probably the legend 
eventually became more than reality. But at the end of the day, it was a very significant moment in terms of Alabama football desegregating and, and obviously the effect that had on the rest of the SEC. So um, wishing, uh, sending all our thoughts to his family. Uh, this weekend, basically two games, tower over the others, I think. And um, one of them I'm going to, and that is Oregon at Ohio State. And the other one, I feel like every year you, you, we talk about, oh, this is the year you got to go to the Cyhawk game. If ever there was a year to go to it, it would be this one. Number nine versus number 10, the team that you, the Iowa State team that you believe is capable of not just getting to the playoff, but winning a game against an Iowa team that you're also very high on. Uh, handicap this one for us. Well, if you judge off week one, Iowa is going to be tough to beat because they look dominant and gave Michael Penix Jr. all sorts of problems, picked him off three times. Uh, I think Tyler, you know, two two of the maybe the best five running backs in college football right now in Brees Hall from Iowa State and Tyler Goodson, who I think is dynamite. Um, they, you know, and Iowa has really kind of owned this series even of late. So, um, you know, look, my preseason pick, I, I still think Iowa State can win the Big 12 or will win the Big 12. But if they have any hopes of going to the playoff, you can win the Big 12. If you don't beat this Iowa team, it's going to be a long, you know, up. you're going to have long odds to to get there. But I don't know. I Because they didn't look great last weekend against UNI. Now, UNI is a really good FCS team, but you're still talking about an FCS team at the end of the day. So uh, the question for me is, can Brock Purdy avoid the mistakes that Michael Penix Jr. couldn't against... By the way, Phil Parker does not get enough credit as a defensive coordinator. Phil Parker is not a guy that like is a big media guy. I'm sure you know Scott Docterman, God bless him, was able to you know did a hour podcast with him. Most people do not get that kind of um, out of Phil Parker. He does a really good job there. He's kind of a man of few words, but you know they. I don't know. I I'm going to stick to my preseason pick of Iowa State. But I think Iowa's really good, too. So um, I love this matchup. It's match a toss-up game to me football-wise. But it's going to be such a madhouse in Ames. This is – they just – you never get a game this big in Ames, Iowa. It's hard for me to pick against the home team in a situation like that. It's certainly possible Iowa goes there and, and deflates them and puts a big dent in their dream season. But, man, the, the crowd is going to be nuts, just the whole atmosphere around it. Game day coming – um and, and all of that. I get what you're saying about home field advantage because we're so wired to think that. But if you go back, I think it's the last ten years. I'm going to read this off to you, and then we'll we'll pivot back to uh, to your game in Columbus. So in 2000 and uh, starting in, in 2012, game was in Iowa State. Game game was in Iowa City. Iowa State wins. The next year it was in Ames. Iowa wins. The next year was in Iowa City, Iowa State wins. The next year was in Ames, Iowa wins. So that's four years in a row the road team won. Uh, then Iowa held serve. Then Iowa won in Ames. So that's five out of six. Iowa again, and then Iowa and Ames. So it's basically, I think, six, six out of eight times the last eight games the road team has won in this series. No, it's, it's definitely worth bringing up. Uh, I think you would agree that Iowa State is a lot better than they were for most of that stretch. And 
I know that Iowa State has, has set like their new season ticket record. I'm sure Iowa fans sneak into this game, though. Um, again, toss-up game. Whichever team you pick, you can make a compelling argument for. Um, by the way, I'm not even. I'm also not deterred by the uh, scare Iowa State had in Week One because for whatever reason, Matt Campbell and Iowa State never look good in Week One. They, I was, you know, you speaking of, of past results, they lost thirteen to three to Iowa in Week One in 2018, and then went on to have a perfectly good season. Got taken to overtime by Northern Iowa in 2019, and then last season, everybody remembers they lost by 17 to. Louisiana Lafayette and then ended up in the Fiesta Bowl. So not reading too much into that. I am reading a lot into Iowa's dominant performance against Indiana and we'll see what happens this week. All right, let's talk Ohio State, Oregon. We saw in week one, Ohio State, all those weapons on offense were as advertised and the defense was mortal like we thought it might be. Um, It's interesting. Ohio State, if you remember in 2018, Urban Meyer's last season was awful on defense. Ryan Day gets promoted. He brings in Jeff Halfley and they moved up from like number, I I don't, they moved up to all the way up to almost the top nationally. Chase Young was dominant that year. And then they went right back to mediocre last year. And so it kind of makes you wonder, okay, I know it's only one game, but maybe the, the norm was the Jeff half. I mean, the exception was the Jeff Halfley defense and that this is more where Ohio state is as a program right now, where they are as talented as anybody, Alabama included, on offense, and maybe not quite the old standard on defense. Yeah, I think for a lot of Ohio State fans, because I brought this up, it was actually on Ryan Rosillo's podcast a couple, like a week before the season, about just being a little skeptical of the Ohio State defense. Like you said, they were not very good last year. And by the way, they were not very good, and they had Pete Warner who was a really good player, and they had some other very experienced linebackers. Now, you can talk about, oh, we got this four-star, this five-star guy who's waiting in the wings behind him. If those guys weren't good enough to beat those other guys out, because some of these guys are, you know, have been in the program for a while, and I get it, sometimes it takes a while for guys to develop, but that that doesn't make me that much more confident, right? I mean, still the same defensive coordinator, Kerry Coombs, who was a really good cornerbacks coach and is now... He's running it. Um, I think they're going to be better on the defensive line because Larry Johnson's really upgraded the talent level, especially on the outside. Uh, the thing that's interesting to me, one of the one of the many things that's interesting to me about this game is, and we talked about Fresno State some. I think Fresno State's really good. They gave Oregon a lot of trouble. From everything I've heard, Oregon held out, held back a bunch of stuff offensively that I think you will see against the Buckeyes so we'll see if a their offensive line can hold up against the defensive line and give Anthony Brown time and how consistent and accurate can Anthony Brown be and take advantage of it because for a while Oregon has been very limited outside you know like that um the bowl game that that you and I both went to when it was a 7-6 game against Michigan State and I'm blanking on the kid's name. I know he's from Memphis, and he was the he was a really good receiver for them, for the Ducks. But it was basically him and nobody else. And then it's been just very underwhelming outside. Now they they're really excited about Troy Franklin, a freshman. They have still have um, you know Micah Pittman's a good player. They feel like they have some options out there and a deep backfield. 
I'm interested to see what Joe Moorhead has up his sleeve because obviously he has played Ohio State a bunch from his days in uh, Happy Valley. So I like that chess match side of it. Yeah, and it should be noted about Ohio State's defense. I I should have mentioned this off the top, but they were without their two starting cornerbacks, Seven Banks and Cam Brown, against Minnesota. It's not necessarily known yet whether they'll be back this week. I, I think I've been saying it all summer, and I still think it's true. The game basically comes... Well, two things now. Is Kayvon Thibodeau going to be back and 100% and able to disrupt that Ohio State offense? Uh, that is a huge factor. But I really think it's it's the Anthony Brown game. You know, here's a guy who started a lot of games at BC and was, was decent, but not... Uh, you know, this isn't like Jalen Hurts transferring to Oklahoma. Um First game as the starter last week, I think it didn't really do much to change my opinion of him either way. Can he beat you with his arm? We just don't know. I think that if you know, you say Joe Moorhead has some wrinkles in store. I imagine we we will see heavy quarterback run in this game. And you know, last year in the abbreviated season, one thing that you did see was Travis Dye. So Travis Dye and C.J. Verdell have been in their backfield forever. <laughs> They're back for, I think, a fourth season together. And Travis Dye started to become more of an uh, all-purpose weapon, running back receiver. And I'm interested to see how they use him uh, to maybe, um, much the way, frankly, Texas used B. John Robinson last week, where you, you're going to try to get him the ball any number of ways. I'm picking Ohio State. I am just hoping for a good game since it's a... A long trip there I'd like to, and it's gonna be my first live college football game of any kind since the LSU Oregon National Championship I'm fired up to, to be part of 100,000 seat rocking stadium and uh, so come on guys make it interesting right do you have a go-to restaurant in Columbus uh, I don't have a go-to restaurant in Columbus I don't know if you do but I've been to a lot of good ones yeah, there's a lot of places on High Street. We would always, TV would put us up there, and there was a bunch of, there was a good steakhouse. There's yep. a really good Italian restaurant like right across the street. So Columbus is a great city. Um, I, if you've never been there, it's an interesting thing in that it's a you know thriving uh, major city that also has this enormous college and this enormous college football stadium, you know, the kind of place that you're used to existing in some small, small college town somewhere in the middle of this major city. So... Uh, I've probably covered, if I had to guess, I've probably covered more games at Ohio State in my career than anywhere else. Here's what I would imagine you, that, that will get to your heart pretty quick is when you get there on Friday, you will feel like you were in football yeah. country, you know? And like, I just remember, like, there's been a couple of times where I've gone there where I've stayed walkable distance from uh, the Woody, which is their football uh, complex. And so, you know, like, it's, it's a it's actually a pretty good area to walk around in terms of like things are relatively centrally located i feel like not uh, i don't know at least that's my 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 recollection of it and it just feels like feels like the weather's starting to turn which i don't know what's going to be i don't think we're quite there yet. Least, uh, yeah but uh, like when the games i've done even if it's mid to late september it just starts to feel like football it just very much feels like football country to me and as somebody who, and I've said this before in our podcast, I did grow up a Buckeye fan a long time ago. So there's something about that place that just kind of, it, you know, I think that's, especially you growing up in Ohio, I think that'll probably resonate for the same, just 
It's just different. Uh, a piece of trivia. My first, well, my first college football game as a kid was actually a Cincinnati Rutgers game at Nippert Stadium. My first, if you want to call it, major football game was an Ohio State Northwestern game in 1992 uh, before I had any clue I would end up going to Northwestern. The starting quarterback for the Buckeyes that day, want to guess? 1992? Um, was it Kirk? It was Kirk. Wow. There you have it. What do you say we get to the inbox, the emails? Uh, let You do can it. send your emails to... TheAudiblePod at gmail.com. It took him a few years, but he's got it. <laughs> I know, now I know. got it down. TheAudiblePod at gmail.com. All right, my, the first question, Bruce, I don't usually do this. Josh in Chicago wrote this question and submitted it both to my written mailbag and to this mailbag. I answered it. It's on the mailbag that's on The Athletic on Wednesday morning, which you can read by subscribing for 50% off at theathletic.com slash theaudible. But I want, to, I want to hear your opinion on it. So here we go. Clemson has been a pretty steady number two in most people's minds as the best teams overall in college football since they won their last national championship in 2018. But since then, they lost badly in the college football playoff final to LSU, lost badly to Ohio State in last year's CFP semifinals, and now lost badly, offensive-wise at least, to Georgia in the first game of the season. Are they still number two? If not them, is it Ohio State? Nobody? Your thoughts? It's an interesting question in that juxtaposition because Clemson is is so much more talented, I think, than the rest of the, the teams in their league that I don't know how great they have to be to get to the playoff, to be honest. Um, you look at their schedule right now. The only team that I think will has a chance to even be ranked by the time they play them is at NC State. You know, it just, again, now maybe South Carolina, they had a nice opening for Shane Beamer, and that's on the road at the end of the year. But I'm looking at this. You got, like, Wake Forest, UConn, at Louisville, who looked awful the other night. Florida State maybe looked a little, you know, a little better. Syracuse, Pitt, BC, Georgia Tech, South Carolina State. I mean, this is a really underwhelming schedule and so to spin it forward i'm like okay though i'd be surprised if they lost to anybody i'd be surprised if they lose especially remember how bad north carolina and miami looked week one so i don't you know who's gonna ride you know spring up to to look really good to challenge them in the acc title game in assuming they're 12 and 1 because they're going to get the benefit of the doubt because Dabo has a couple of national titles but the thing that I wondered about a little bit, and again, I only saw now, I had a chance to see some highlights, but it wasn't like I have had a chance to watch the whole game back of Georgia and South and Clemson. The offensive line was overmatched by a very talented front seven at Georgia. No doubt they are very talented. But, you know, you had really good quarterback play that, that maybe covered up some things, and you had a really... Um, gifted all-around running back in Travis Etienne. I mean, uh, Josh mentions that that LSU national title game. LSU, that LSU group, yeah, they won the Joe Moore Award. That wasn't a great offensive line either. It was a good one. But I think when you have a really, really good, smart quarterback and a really good running back who's versatile, you could overcome a lot of stuff. You know, I, I mean, in LSU's case, they did a lot of, you know, send five men out and... It just basically makes stuff happen. Um, 
I don't know if you know. I'm sure. I, I'm sure Clemson's offensive line will get better, but some of that stuff I think is honestly, um, you know, I, I just don't. I don't want to say that like you know between Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence playing a great game in the national title game that 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 was like there was nothing fluky about it. I mean, they're definitely a really ta- a really talented program, but I just think so much of this is like. There's Alabama, and then there's everybody else. Because, you know, the team that beat them the other day, Georgia's had clunker performances, right? I mean, we've seen them get blown out a couple of times in the last three years. I mean, Ohio State, same deal. I think this is, um, I feel like this is really more of a how great is Alabama thing than, you know, I mean, you can say Clemson got dominated. They they didn't give up a touchdown either, right? On on defense, they basically gave up a pick six. So I think this is really more about Alabama just having almost no letdown ever. And these other teams, sometimes they don't. You know, they're college. They're college teams. Sometimes they come out flat. Sometimes they're not prepared. Sometimes they have a little gap in the talent where they need guy, younger guys to develop, and maybe they haven't. Maybe they're not quite ready yet at the beginning of the year. And I feel like that's. I mean, it's a long answer to get to that. I I just come back to there's Alabama, and then there's everybody else, and then there's a next batch of teams, which is you know Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma, who've consistently been very good, but they're not Alabama. Do you agree? I agree. I think you're you're getting way ahead of yourself if you're trying to say that somebody has like has definitively passed clemson as a football program and i'm not saying no i'm not saying no no, no i'm all. saying yeah. if josh or anybody yeah, out so. there is uh, i mean it's like you got to keep a little bit of perspective they made the national championship game two years ago they made the semifinals last year alabama if you recall missed the playoff in 2019 then they came back with with a vengeance last year. Obviously, Alabama, though, in fairness, is in a much tougher conference, and I know you wouldn't agree with that. I disagree with that, but that like Clemson has had some games, you know, a couple of times with NC State, certainly with Pitt and with BC last year. Take out the Notre Dame game because you know I don't really see Notre Dame as an eight, eight. I know they were, but I don't see them as an ACC team. But those were not great teams that gave them all they could handle. You know, that would be the equivalent. Uh, be careful of going too far with this but that would that's not like to me those teams are missouri-ish you know relative to the rest of the sec right um they're missouri maybe mississippi state like or i look at it this way then you know clemson got into the 2019 championship game by beating in a very very good ohio state team in the semis remember they were they were on the ropes and then trevor lawrence led them down the field for that last second drive so if you want to say Clemson slipped back a little bit last season, I don't disagree. They actually lost a regular season game at Notre Dame. Uh, I think it was their first regular season loss in three years. And they did not look great in this Georgia game. The one thing, and you mentioned it, and I've always I've been fascinated about this for a while, and so I dug into the numbers. You think about all the great players Clemson has put into the NFL under Dabo, right? Whether you're talking about, obviously, Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, all those great receivers— all those great defensive linemen. The one area where they are have not done that is offensive line. Jackson Carmen last year was a second round pick. He is the only first or second round offensive lineman drafted from Clemson since 2015. Alabama over that same period has had five first and second round offensive linemen and five others who got drafted. So 
it kind of signals to me that they've always kind of had an average offensive line that they were able to mask by having these elite quarterbacks and elite receivers. And Travis Etienne, who I really feel if, if the first game against Georgia ends up being an indicator of their season, you're going to see how much they miss Travis Etienne. So um, some, it's just something to watch going forward. I don't think the Clemson-Dabo dynasty is, is going you know in smithereens, but they got to get that offensive line corrected. All right, Stu, next question from Sam B. in Auburn, Alabama. This question, by the way, is coming from a fan of this year's number one preseason ranked team. Uh, okay, Sam. After this weekend, and well, every opening weekend, does it not show that we need to put the preseason top 25 to rest? These preseason rankings do have an effect on perception throughout the season. Even though they're based on projections and gut feelings, should we not wait till at least week five before we start to truly rank teams? This is a very good question, I think, Stu. I'm, I have my thoughts on this. I'm curious. Where do you land on it now in 2021? I mean, to answer the last sentence there, should we wait until week five? Yes, absolutely. Would we ever do that? Absolutely not. Uh, polls are mostly... For entertainment purposes and to keep us interested in the season and even if the ap poll and the um, usa today poll decided tomorrow you know what these aren't very useful we're going to stop doing them the athletic would do one espn.com would do one athlon certainly would do one you, there's never not going to be preseason rankings of some kind and of course you're guessing in a lot of cases and they're obviously not going to turn out to be particularly accurate um, but people love them. Uh, people can't get enough of them, so they're not going anywhere. At least the playoff committee waits until later in the season, but but I agree with Sam that it would be naive to think that these preseason rankings don't end up ultimately having an effect on those playoff rankings as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I just think it's just something that is so ingrained into the sport, and honestly, the TV networks love it because... It just makes a game seem bigger if they have a number next to it. So um, as much as it, it seems like it would make sense to do that, they're not going to do it. And that's pretty much the end of story, unfortunately. All right, the next one is from James in Los Angeles. Hi, guys. So it seems like Texas A&M is doing all right with their monster win over mighty Kent State, but I have a concern over Jimbo Fisher's contract extension. So if you missed it, he got, uh, we all know about the $75 million contract when he was hired. He got a raise to from $7.5 million a year to $9 million a year. Has A&M agreed to pay him $95 million over the next 10 years with no buyout, allowing any other team in college or the NFL to hire him with no financial repercussions? The answer is yes. If he does win big, which he hasn't done yet, won't Texas A&M be forced to increase his 10-year guaranteed salary again and again? At the same moment, he will start getting offers from other big-time programs to leave. If that happens, why wouldn't he just leave, keep collecting his $9 million plus, and collect $9 million more? To, oh, they wouldn't keep paying him if he got another job, James. Uh, but what about the, the part leading up to that? I don't Honestly, I don't know on this stuff, Stu. I mean, the, the thing a lot of people wonder is, the guy who got him to leave Florida State to go to College Station, Scott Woodward, is now the AD at LSU. 
if LSU doesn't get it going this year under Ed Ogeron, he may be having a coaching search. Jimbo Fisher used to work uh, at LSU. Would that would he look at that and say, "Oh, I want to go there"? And would A and M think, "Ooh, he may want to leave"? Because there's, I think, there's only a handful of jobs. If you're Texas A&M, you have to worry about Jimbo Fisher leaving for. Um, the question I would pose to you with basically little, I think, contractually to keep Jimbo Fisher there, um, if he so decided, oh, I think I have a better chance to win a national title someplace else. Because keep in mind, if it were to be LSU, you're still in the same division. You still have to deal with Nick Saban one way or the other. Who, what if it's to eventually replace Nick Saban? That's a good question. That is another, probably a consideration that Ross Bjork and the people who are at Texas A&M who are marshalling up that money, I'm sure that's something that they're kicking around. I don't see Jimbo Fisher going to like a Big Ten school or going to an a, or going to another AAC school, ACC school, excuse me, or going to the Pac-12. I mean, to me, he seems like he is as much an SEC guy as you're probably getting. Um I don't know when you saw this. When you saw this contract, keep in mind again. On one side, Texas A&M has had one ten-win season in the last twenty years. One, and by the way, Jimbo didn't have it. It was because the pandemic was a shortened season, somewhat. The one season was Kevin Sumlin's year where Johnny Manziel won the Heisman. So it's not like A&M has been like basking in a lot of big, big success on the football field in the last twenty years. So this is a starved for success place that really puts a premium on we're going to compete to play college football at the highest level the part that i think you know they i think you have to think if you're paying jimbo fisher this money you know you're not paying him to just make the playoff once in four years you're paying him to win national titles that's what the you know like you know and you're also by the way if jimbo doesn't get him into the playoff you know fairly soon they're going to get really ticked off about that too because now all of a sudden like the expectations are if you were to ask me who has the highest expectations on them of a guy who hasn't won a national title it's either him or kirby and i feel like it's really jimbo i mean jimbo's obviously won a national title but not there and they're paying him a ton of money so it is an interesting phenomenon i mean jimbo walks on water there the way a&m people talk about him you would think he's already delivered them national championships they're now paying him more than any coach but Nick Saban but I when it happened last week it was hey what are you doing you're negotiating against yourself then LSU lost to UCLA and it's like oh I see where you're going with this you're showing him a little bit of love in case that LSU job comes open because that has always been but you've already shown him like devil's uh, devil's advocate you've already shown him a ton of love by the money you're giving him of guaranteed if LSU decides hey we're gonna come after Jimbo Fisher that's when you're going to have to go say, hey, we're going to have to pay him $12 million a year or some outrageous, even more outrageous sum of money. The question is going to be, is Jimbo Fisher at that point, and I don't know if this is a quote unquote a good faith thing, because right now, if, if A&M goes like 10 and 2, it doesn't beat Alabama or, or, you know, like is something like, or is not as good as last year on paper. Do you feel like then you got to pay him a third time to justify that? You know, because and maybe it won't be LSU. Maybe there'll be some other job. I don't see Jimbo being a, a candidate for USC. I don't see them hiring him. But uh, you know, for whatever, or maybe the NFL would come after Jimbo. I don't know. But if you're A and M, you're in a weird position because you've already 
you backed up the Brinks truck twice, and now, theoretically, if somebody else comes after them, I don't know if that's going to be good enough for them. Bruce, I think that all is very logical, but you're trying to apply logic to a completely irrational situation. I think what it comes down to is A&M has a lot of money, and they like to spend it. They like to show you how much money they have. They like to, to, to you know, that $75 million original contract was a total flex. And also, don't you think some of this is in response to Texas coming to the SEC and wanting to show that, like, hey, we're still a step or two ahead of you. We've got this guy, and we're paying him this much because we can. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think in the end of the day it really affects stay or go in any meaningful way. Um, I don't even think it necessarily changes the pressure. Like, the pressure will be there regardless of what, if he makes 7.5 or 9 million. I think they've got the money and they can spend it and this is how they're choosing to spend it. And, uh, but it does make you wonder like, okay, if Jimbo Fisher does break through this year, beat Alabama and win the national championship, how much are they going to pay him then? Because you got to get a big raise after that. What is he going to make? 12 million? Uh, it's not unrealistic to think. Um, as always, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Can't wait for next week's episode after we get in another set of games. We'll see you next time. <music>